0: I was just going to say I still think we need to do an intro one time where we flip uh dialogue responsibilities. Yeah. Just just to see how how poorly it goes. God, what
1: is even what even is yours? Hold on. See,
0: that's my thing. Hi and
1: welcome to the this is Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast episode 54. This week's episode, we're going to be doing <laughs> a New World by Aldous Huxley. I'm Jacob and with me is my good buddy and fellow host Ryan Yes,
0: hello and welcome uh, Insert witty thing here uh. Hello and welcome to the Better of the Bookshelf podcast episode 54 In this episode we are talking about Aldous Huxley's Brave New World I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome
1: to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other, episode 54. And let me tell you, this is like after hours with Better the Bookshelf. We're recording yeah, this pretty late. We are. This is this isn't this is an episode of first. This is our latest episode, which I guess isn't technically a first. It's the first time we've recorded after like 9 p.m. There yes. we go. That make that makes it a first. And it's the first time I'm recording in my new digs. Yeah, uh, technically speaking. So, that's exciting for me. I'm excited. I've got a I've got some acoustic stuff set up. I don't know how how good it's going to come out. I got some tinkering to do with it. But yes. Welcome, episode 54. This episode's going to be Interesting. I yeah. I would like to say it's a standalone episode, but honestly, I feel like so much of what we're going to be talking about today is going to relate back to our previous episode. That it would really be doing yourself a disservice as a reader if you hadn't gone back and read 1984, or listened to the upper episode, because this is kind of the the counterplay. I feel to our previous episode, we're sort of just getting all our dystopias out of the way at once.
0: Yeah, definitely uh, like staying with a the theme with these two episodes of of talking about dystopias although this one is more of a utopian dystopia if you will
1: sure it 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 attempts it to you know have its control in a certainly different means than 1984 but yeah i'm getting ahead of myself this is gonna be a pretty standard episode some would say it's by the books (laughs) i'm so (laughs) fucking clever um But yeah, we'll tell you a little bit about the author Aldous Huxley. I'll give you a very super brief summary. It'll be like two or three words. And then we're just going to get into it. We'll talk a little bit about uh, themes in this book, how maybe it relates to the stuff that we kind of talked about in 1984. I'm sure we'll bring up some uh, – present day situations that maybe reflect what's going on in this book. And then, of course, we'll we'll rate it. We'll get to our patented three tier four if we're getting rid of it. Five if we're going to give it some Soma and have it lay down and go on a Soma vacation. Six if we're just going to have an orgy-porgy. But I don't know if we're going to get there. And then, of course, we'll tell you what's coming up on the next episode.
0: Yes. So if you have not read the book, go read the book because it's weird to listen to a podcast about a book you haven't read Unless, of course, this is on your summer reading list and you have no intention of reading the book before you have to go back in the school in the fall. And then, if that's the case, kudos to you for being so smart and listening to podcasts instead of reading the thing. That being said, is that smart though? Is that smart or is that just cheating?
1: Uh, it's cheating. right? I mean, it's, it's basically a little, it's a little cheatery. I mean, look, if you're in college, it's a gonna, quick read. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's what like 160, 170 something pages. Yeah, something like you that. You just Burn through in a couple nights or 270. But you know, oh, your version. I have an old. I have an old version, so mine's like super sh- small text. It's like oh, 170 pages. Yeah, mine.
0: mine. Mine's like standard size text, and it's 270. Let's see, when
1: is my Yeah, I love old books.
0: I have my versions from 1946. So. Oh damn, that is an old version. Mm. Cuz this, mm, this, this originally was published in uh 32.
1: 32. I just saw it inside the
0: jacket. I didn't memorize that. So, it's damn. Not impressive. Damn. Yeah, mine's from 1998. So, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh all right, let's let's talk uh all this Huxley. Uh Do he it. was born in July of 1894 died in november of 1963 he was a writer obviously uh and a philosopher uh he wrote nearly 50 books which is prolific by anybody's standards uh he was nominated for the nobel prize in literature seven times Ooh, just just hard stop there seven they ever get one they ever get one i mean Uh, seven times come on no i i didn't see his list of rewards or awards seven times uh,
1: and, I feel I feel like after five they just got to give you one. Yeah, right?
0: you, yeah. You should you should accumulate. That's like a lifetime achievement. Exactly. Nobel, at least like posthumously or something.
1: It's, uh, it's like those Oscars that they the you know they honor the people with a career. Or maybe that's not the Oscars, but at award shows when they do that. Yeah. Like, come it's, on, get, it's so crazy.
0: Uh, but he was also elected to. Uh, or elected, I should say, Companion of Literature by the Royal Society of Literature in the UK. Uh, I actually did a little bit of, of, of uh, research on that. So it was, it's a quote-unquote learned society that was founded in 1820 by King George IV to, quote, reward literary merit and excite literary talent, unquote. Um, there were a few, you know, notable authors on there. Uh, J.K. Rowling was on there. Uh, shockingly, China Mieville was on there. Uh, wow. Yeah.
1: Friend, (laughs) friend of the podcast, China Mieville.
0: Oh man. Uh, which I mean, I don't know if we just picked a weird book of his to read or what, but I saw nothing of value there. Uh, as a child, uh, Huxley's nickname was Ogie. Which I thought was uh, kind of funny. Short for ogre, um, he uh, contracted. Okay. Is it is it technically short if they're literally like the same amount, like in the same breath? I could say ogre. You're literally just swapping the. It's the I same amount of syllables. From, it's not short. The other way around. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so I'm just, I just have like some weird facts. Uh, he contracted, uh, the, this eye disease that left him blind for two to three years. And then he was dealing with basically partial blindness in, in, uh, one of his eyes. Uh, he moved to the United States at, at one point. Uh, and he was part of like, he was associated with this, uh, Vedanta society, which is like, you know, one of those like guru meditation, weird shit. Oh Yeah uh and then he experimented with psychedelics uh mescaline which i don't know does that have a more common name i'm i'm not familiar with that at all you've never heard of mescaline no
1: oh no it's that's that's like the name oh it's just it's just it's i don't know it's kind of like uh lsd it's kind of like shrooms no oh. yeah i've
0: just uh never never dabbled in uh in it's psychedelics. Like peyote
1: i'm
0: pretty sure it's peyote well, the interesting thing, and the reason that I mentioned that is, uh, so on his deathbed, where he's suffering from uh, laryngeal cancer, Huxley wrote to his wife and requested uh, that she give him LSD, which uh, she did, and, uh, and he died later in the day, uh, not related to the LSD. But Are you sure it wasn't the LSD? I mean... <sighs> Over the cancer? It, it, could, it could have been, but, you know, logic, logic dictates it was probably the cancer. Fun fact about Aldous Huxley's death, it was pretty overshadowed because it
1: was the same day that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. So,
0: yes, I was going to mention that at the top uh, November 22nd, 1963, 1963 jinx. Yep. Um, yeah. And uh, I mentioned at the end of last episode that uh, one of his last books, um, Island, was sort of a utopian compliment uh, to this to this book, um, Brave New World. So, kind of a kind of an interesting guy. Uh, what things did you pick out for your summary? Uh, we're just gonna
1: do a, a really quick and dirty, like five or six word summary. You ready? <clears throat> yeah, ready. John the Savage doesn't like orgy porgies. That's it. It's basically the book least the back half of it the last chapter or so that's
0: that's like yeah it's probably like the second half of the book is basically just john's aversion to sex all right let's
1: uh let's get into this this was i'm gonna throw this right out there off the top this was an odd read yeah um i'm not sure exactly what i was expecting because you know i knew that this was kind of sort of the counterplay, I guess, to 80 to 1984, where Uh we get more of more of the ideas that we see when we see sort of totalitarianism, right? Mm Take over to create these sort of dystopias. We see it through sort of like this manufactured control through observation, through just basically squashing dissent. Um, And then you have this book, which is a little bit more interesting, because you're kind of like manufacturing um, away the the sort of room for dissent you're sort of creating like an overabundance of pleasure in an effort to sort of dis- dissuade people from i guess ever really rising up or or attempting to question the authority of the people that put them in place and it's it definitely reads a little bit less like i don't know i i had a hard time getting as like into this one is sort of like interacted with like these mm-hmm. ideas that that were going through as I did with 1984. Was that kind of a problem that you had in this, or am I
0: just no, hundred um, percent? Matter of fact, the, like page like four in my book, I, I started to to have an oh shit kind of reaction to everything. So like when they first start doing the the tour um, through the like incubation uh, or insemination area or whatever wherever the kids are and the director is is kind of going through stuff there were just some some choices that like Huxley made that I was like oh no this this could be poorly written so what I mean by that is like he uses the word rather three times on one page describing you know the the director's uh you know, physique. He was rather tall and, uh, you know, rather this and rather that, and had a lot of this just imprecise language in there. And I know that like part of it was, you know, by the time you get to the end of the book, you sort of realize that, um, you know, the language in society isn't there and that people are all kind of the same in these, uh, in these groupings. So you may not have distinguishing features, but before you get kind of that, those sort of details, uh, the narrator's choice of words and, and descriptors were really troubling. The other thing that Huxley did early on, which just irks the shit out of me, is when you break up dialogue with action. So there was, uh, on, on like page five, he's talking about the incubators, and he, he goes, these, he waved his hand, are the incubators. Why not just say, these are the incubators, and he waved his hand, or he waved his hand and said, these are the incubators. I, like, it is such is a... Is that nit- just like a stylistic? Yeah, just- and and he d- he does it again, like, the, the sentence after. He, he says, uh, the weak supply of ova kept, he explained, at blood heat, where the males uh, gametes, and here he opened another door, they have to be kept, blah, 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 blah. And, like he's twice interjects one piece of dialogue with with actions. And on one hand, I, I get you could make the argument. Yes, it's a stylistic choice for like, you know, m- tactile movement um, as he's going through his explanations, you know, in the, in the tour and stuff. But I, I personally just find that really jarring and unnecessary. Right.
1: I I think the whole thing that kind of got me off 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 kilter just from starting out this book is this. Uh, beginning seems very forced, right? Like I understand it's kind of like mm-hmm. the central idea is this like reprogramming of society, but it feels to me like it's just like, oh man, like how do you how do you naturally start a book that sort of like leads into this dystopian society, right? Do you give sort of a background? And I know you kind of get a little bit of that interspersed in the first few chapters yeah. when they're going through all this stuff, but it's basically we, we show up and it's as though – Aldous Huxley is like, we're the students and he's the director basically just explaining us. All right, here's the idea, guys. So yep. this is how it works. This is how we've gotten to this point. And we're all just going to kind of nod and understand that this is the situation at hand so that the rest of this book makes sense. Because, you know, there's not really another finesse way to sort of introduce this idea without... Just having it bogged down, you know, if it's something where, oh, you know, we f- we meet our characters first and, you know, we learn about sort of what's going on in his life. And then we un- then, you know, kind of like what 1984 did, where we get a little bit in and then we kind of get more pieces sort of unraveling. We learn basically everything there is to know about the society sans a few things like right off right off mm-hmm. right off the bat like right up front it's like hey you know here's this genetic process that we go by to make all these clones and here's what we do to make sure that they're in the right cast and all this other stuff and it did feel very just clunky to me like as a reader just sure. going in because like I get it and it's like okay I could like you're laying the groundwork for kind of what you're going to build everything off of because so much of so much of this society this dystopia is completely based on again the sort of genetic programming right like everything centers around that like the sleep basically the sleep programming all of the like pavlovian stuff with their kids Mm -hmm. like there's no it doesn't seem like there's any real like uh force like from the government to really like suppress these kind of things, they've they've moved past. I mean you see at the end whenever there's whenever John kind of has the blow up at the hospital that you they do seemingly have kind of like a force to help with this. But it seems like everything is everything is done sort of on a higher level, right? It's not just like forced coercion like you better Mm -hmm. you better listen to us or we're gonna send you to the gulag, right? It's very much like, well everybody's happy Because this is the role they have to play and they've been programmed to be happy for that, which is which is an interesting theory. I think it's definitely a more interesting and subversive sort of like idea to kind of look into and sort of be curious about. But man, the way we kind of just like get into this book, we're right off the bat. It's just, okay. here's all the here's all the specifications of this program and what we do. And here's this process for how we manage to, you know, Bokanovs or whatever process that we can make 17,000. And I'm just like, oh, my God, man. Like I did not, (laughs) I was, I was a little bit by the time we got past all that and we got on to, you know, Lenina and all that stuff. I was, I was honestly, I was relieved because it was pretty much a slog the first like three chapters.
0: Uh, totally agree. I think the, the amount of exposition was, was arduous, but I will say, I think the like whole like tour thing is a very clever way to set the stage. I just think sure. Huxley's execution of that was probably a little bit long-winded. I mean,
1: certainly. I mean, like we get we get what three chapters of this basically where we're three or four chapters until we meet uh like yeah. Mustafa and then it kind of like branches off. So, yeah, I mean it 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 was effective in a sense of like okay, here's kind of the central premise of how we manage, you know, everything else is secondary. Once we kind of have created this process, you know, getting rid of all the history and all this other stuff, you know, that becomes easy. So it's really important that we drive this home. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was one of those things. Like early on, I was struggling with this book. It, it and I was I was genuinely concerned at first because I like looked at this, I was like, oh, this is gonna be a quick read. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna jam through it, <laughs> and then the first. Oh, the first phases. like four chap—the first yeah. like four chapters took me like six hours because I just kept like putting it down. It's like, oh, I'll come back to that. And then afterwards, I would say the last, you know, the last like twelve chapters, I just blew through in about three or four hours. But yeah, oh the, man,
0: the the one thing that I did walk away from the from the first part, um, with though was a very uneasy feeling about this whole society, right? Because. You know they're very like sort of the interaction and and all that stuff is very upbeat, um, but what they're talking about is is literal brainwashing and sure you know genetic manipulation uh, and that is those are like very disturbing concepts but it was presented in such like a uh, with such levity at some points that it it just you knew that he was setting something up that was, I thought, going to be, you know, a little bit complicated um, psychologically throughout. I think the book lost that steam for me. Like, it set up something that never really, like, paid off in that way. Uh, yeah, we kind of got... Made we a weird got, turn. Yeah, we kind of... It, it did. I will say that. that's That was
1: probably the second part I was going to get to. But before that, yeah, just... I the one thing I think that it did really well accomplishing in the the first section of this book despite it being kind of a slog is yeah is setting up this kind of like moral like what you're reading and all this thing like as an external viewer you're saying like oh this is awful this is obviously like morally corrupt and and immoral to do to human beings but at the same time it's like well as far as like your dystopian societies go I mean if you're literally programmed from birth to you know ha- to serve a role in the society to derive happiness from it and you're given these sorts of things that sort of induce that happiness like i can understand that sort of side of like are they a moral society versus something like a 1984 where it's just strictly a you are you were forced you were have force coercion, you know, at the at the at you know a knife's edge, or mm-hmm. you know, at the end of a gun. You know, your life will be forfeit if you step out of line. This one seems it's more so they you know i mean for example it's like oh these guys uh you know like bernard it's he's he's constantly kind of like questioning all this and the biggest threat is yeah we'll send you to iceland it's not like we're going right, to erase right. you your existence that ever existed it's just like yeah well you know we'll send you off to this place and it's basically you're not going to have the comforts you know it's kind of like an exile but we're not going to kill you or anything like that which again yeah it's one of those like morally speaking is this a more moral society than 1984? Does it matter? Do they both have their just irredeemably sinister uh, structures in place that have created this, and it doesn't matter how perceivably happy the people are? I mean, those are interesting things to kind of think about in the first little bit. Yeah, And then we kind of get a weird turn when we go to the quote-unquote savages, right? Like, everything from that point on is just kind of odd it, it it does it like you said it definitely kind of felt like the book took a turn and you didn't really get any like I felt like a lot of the the build-up with Bernard in the first little bit of this book was kind of in that same vein that you see in 1984 where it's kind of like okay well you spark this potential like rebellious ideology or maybe you know you're kind of taking a note from that but mm-hmm. the reality of it was is he just was kind of pissed off but kind of just like well whatever like <laughs> It didn't really seem like he was very, I don't know, very motivated beyond anything outside of, uh, I guess, you know, humiliating his boss whenever he got back with uh,
0: with John the
1: Savage.
0: Yeah, and, that, and even that didn't make a lot of sense, right? Like, on one hand, you can understand Bernard's, uh, like, feelings of, like, being ostracized, you know, for—, for having like a gamma physique or whatever, you know, I think it said it was like eight centimeters shorter than, you know, whatever. and Sure. Whatever, whatever. Right. Like you could, you could see a little Napoleon complex. Yeah. yeah. You could, you could see him how he'd be a little angsty. Um, On the other hand, I really struggled with his one, his desire to go to the reservation made no sense to me whatsoever. Like what was the motivation there? He clearly had some semblance of a plan, or the plot would suggest that he had some semblance of a plan, but that was never clearly articulated. And then when he brings, uh, what was her name? Laura? Uh, was, that, was that her Lenina. name? Lenina. No, 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 not Lenina. Lenina. The, the, uh, the mother, uh, John's mother. Oh, the mother. Uh, yeah, uh, Linda. 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 Uh, he brings Linda and John back. Like, I mean, I I, I get to, like, get back at, at his boss, and, and he's got this ammunition, but, like, the that wasn't his motivation at first. He wanted to just bring John back, and then he saw Linda as like the leverage to get John there. At least that was how I read that. And then it was just sort of this added bonus that Linda and and the director, uh, you know, were the ones that were at the reservation, and he was the one that left. Right, her there. had so made a baby, right, yeah, right,
1: or were parents? Yeah,
0: shunned yes. for being parents. So. That entire turn, like, John's presence, like, with Bernard didn't, like, he just sort of appears out of nowhere. Um, I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense yeah. whatsoever. And then from there, the whole, like, the whole concept of the book really shifts away from this, like, sort of, Analysis of like a dystopia, like Nineteen Eighty-Four, is really a book about the the dystopia, right? What happens sure. to people in that system when they try to to go outside of it? This this book is not so much that because the stakes are really low for Bernard. Other, you know, than getting shipped off to to Iceland, right? Um, he's not- but even at
1: that point, once he comes back and the director is basically out of the picture, there there really isn't, you know, up until. I guess with the, at the end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. With that, with that whole situation after the hospital. But I just, it's like Huxley was, was started writing one book and ended up writing a completely different one. And I think that he tried to pull in like a lot of Shakespearean themes. Like, I don't know if you've ever read the Tempest, but this very much like feels Shakespearean. Um, in in its it sort of adaptation of of themes um from the tempest but <sighs> it didn't start that way and it it sort of was misleading and confusing and i i think also at, at times really just poorly executed the the other thing that like i really struggle with in any kind of literature is like the idea of the savage right and like the the whole idea of like the reservation did you have like a, a reaction to to john like sort of being labeled the savage um
1: i don't know it's just odd i mean the whole i i get to some extent that the reservation was kind of like a mixture of i guess society outside of this influence with i guess like a continuation of native populations within the u.s but mm-hmm. it I don't know, it was just odd, honestly. I mean, like like you said, it was... This book feels very uneven. Um, the first bit is just sort of like bombarding you with all of these sort of like scientific things they're doing and the process by which they do this. And it's interesting, but it's kind of like a slog. And then, you know, it completely changes gears. And the whole rest of the book, you know, it did feel like you weren't really building to anything. It was very anticlimactic like at yep. the end, you know. It's so oh, we're supposed to be building towards something and really it's, you know, Hemholtz and Bernard gets in off or Helmholtz and Bernard gets in off and then John is flagellating himself at the at the lighthouse and all the people are coming out having an orgy and then he just kind of Kills himself. I mean, the whole... Yeah. It it was odd, too. Like, John as a character was, like, kind of odd, too. The whole, like, interaction with... Or just the obsession with Lenina. And, like, none of that felt correct. I don't know. None of it felt like it was, like, natural to me. Like, the whole time I just still kept had to go, like, like why? Why is this happening? And even when she... You know, when it finally sort of, like, reaches a climax and he's like... Like, she goes in there to try to sleep with him. He proposes to her and she like runs to the bathroom as he's trying to attack her. And then he's sort of like repenting and reading, uh, Shakespeare. Yeah. It's just nothing really pieces together very well in this book. I, I, am not sure exactly what, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it, it went over my head, but I'm not sure exactly what the, overarching connection that John was supposed to have other than just being sort of an outsider and uh, just at opposition of this programmed society.
0: Yeah, I, 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 my assessment is, is very much the same. I think when you look at the like totality of the book um, and I feel weird, like summarizing it this, this early in the, in the episode, but you know, if you, if you look at the totality of it, um, it is really an incoherent incohesive um work where i think that like this book has value is are in like the the smaller interactions right so like take Mm -hmm. the take the scene with you know lenina you know drop and trowel um and like you know examine just that scene on its own right and and i think that like you could talk about like the the differences, you know, between the societies have, uh, you know, with, with sexuality. Right. And you have mm-hmm. the, the whole concept of monogamy versus polygamy basically, or actually I don't even know if polygamy would be the correct term. Um, but or, or, jeporgidly, or jeporgidly, jeporgidly, Yeah. Whatever completely noncommittal, you know, communal sex is, um, you know, so, you know you could you could have that conversation you know you could talk about like the ethics of like um people as like a consumable item right like i I like the the part where they're flying um over the crematorium and you know they're they get lifted up by the the gas ejecting and they're like oh it's you know that such and such chemical and you know, this this uh, is recaptured at ninety six percent effectiveness, and you know goes back into this. And I mean, even, even humans are consumable items to this society, and the whole society is is just based on consumerism, right? There's the the concepts of you know, uh, oh god, you don't I, mend, I, yeah. I wrote, that like wrote the no that, mending. That page. You yeah. have to
1: keep just buying and consuming.
0: Yeah, so you could have you could have conversations about uh, commercialism, right? I mean, shit. Sure, uh, America is ripe for that that kind of comparison. Uh, but again, like, and, and we should get into some of those things. I don't mean to just like throw out a bunch of shit all at once. Oh, no, for sure. But like, when you have those things, that's where this book has something of of value to like drive a discussion. But in its totality, it's really hard to to like look at it as a as a narrative, you know, piece and say, you know, this is a resilient work of fiction that, re- that you know should be required reading and it is required reading for some reason in a lot of places um because i don't think it fosters the same amount of uh like conversation as, as comprehensively as like 1984 did right no i agree i agree there's a lot of i don't know it's
1: i think it's definitely if you if you're trying to as a reader sort of get perspective on you know, big literary works describing a dystopia or the things that are most attributed to kind of the negative aspects of our culture or society as a whole today. I think it definitely works as a complement of, of ideas because, you know, it's it's hard to look at a piece of, of work like either this or 1984 entirely and say, yes, this is the playbook. This is, you know, people that would seek to... Um, control that would seek to enact this level of power following this you know to a t i I think it's very important that the ideas are recognized that you you can't just have the the blunt instrument of power that you know forces people into situations and over time you will simply just wear down the the resolve or the resistance and Mm -hmm. then you have a complacent society versus the we're going to Instead, focus people's attentions elsewhere, you know, have them constantly focused on excess or, or of, you know, indulgence. Yeah. And through that, they become complacent and will no longer uh, sort of work against us. So it's, again, there's, there's interesting stuff in here, but it's such an up and down book, man. It's such a, it just feels like two or three separate little microcosms of stories that don't really that have a very tenuous at best sort of like connective tissue between them. And it, I don't know, it just, it, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit disappointed when I put it down at the end that I, I was anticipating a little bit more than just kind of, I mean, honestly, if you're looking for the most like informative and interesting bit, you can stop at chapter four,
0: like you can stop at chapter
1: four and really get everything that this book has to offer as far as, Control. I mean, there's there's stuff later on. The whole you know mass production, like you said, just sort of the how you view individuals as a commodity, right? And the, right. how they kind of worship Henry Ford as this god. That was an interesting little thing that I yeah was going there. let the sort of god god worship of Henry Ford, and they even you know it's the Model T and you know, all their like church su- pseudo services where they're high on soma and just praising Henry Ford before breaking out into these mass orgy porgies.
0: Yeah. So let's. I want to say one thing, and then I kind of want to break down into like the those little those little things, and, and talk about a few pieces. But uh, what are the things that I think you know? If we talk the comparison between 1984 and this one, I mean 1984 was, uh, or the society of uh, Oceana was hinged on both um, commercialism uh, and well, I don't want to say that so much. It was about consuming resources and about fear and death and war, right? To keep to right. keep power. This was, as you said, about sort of keeping people uh, happy. Matter of fact, there was uh, there was that one quote um, that the the world is stable now, people are happy, they can get what they want, uh, and they never uh, something they they never want what they can't get or something to that effect. Um, yeah. And so you have these these very different concepts between these dystopias for, you know, maintaining control and power. And I think that one of the interesting things um, between the two books was that 1984 um, and Oceania seemed to be more focused on keeping the ruling party in power, whereas this society um, was more about just keeping the day to day stability and like productivity in place, and I think that those right. those concepts um, have their real world like you know footholds, right? Um, but I think the thing that's like more likely to happen in in society is you know we're probably more likely to not revolt in you know a Brave New World type scenario. Um, because we're heading there in a lot of ways, right. Um, you know, with just modern conveniences, it's, it's funny to think about, you know, the, the similarities, um, in some of the like socialization and, uh, and all of that kind of stuff compared to like 1984. I mean, there are parts of that, that, that didn't feel as real to me as, as this did, um. but it, it was interesting to look at kind of the two different control structures that were in place in the novels. Um, yeah. and then you mentioned the, uh, the, the church scene and, and, or what would be the, the church scene, the first orgy porgy, did uh, that, that, that scene struck me, I think more on a personal level than like anything else in this book.
1: Okay. Do tell.
0: So I like, I grew up in, like, you know, going to Lutheran churches, but then we also went to these, like, you know, non-denominational churches, and there were a few in there where you'd get, like, the, you know, youth groups where, you know, people are crying, you know, the lights are down low, and everybody's, you know, singing this song and over and over and, like, you know, praying out loud and, like, uh, you know, just these very, like, visceral moments, and... You know, same thing with like some of these non-denominational churches. Like, you know, you'd have people, you know, yelling out, or you know, uh, there were there was one family at this one church that would like speak in tongues, um, which was just, <laughs> just insane. Oh, uh, yeah, literally, oh lord. Uh, but the the thing about oh Ford, <laughs> the thing about the that whole like orgy porgy thing uh, is just how like of an apt description that was for me like bernard felt so apart and like fake in that situation where everybody else is having what seems to be a very real like emotional thing and i i i've never actually in in blankets that uh, craig thompson or craig thomas thompson uh graphic novel, you know, he, he talked about kind of being apart from some of those religious experiences, but Bernard in that Mm. moment made me think of myself, like all the years that I was going to church and all those weird experiences. And it's like, well, you know, I'm here. So I'll like participate at whatever level just, you know, gets me through.
1: I mean, yeah, it's just, the whole thing is, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just kind of a big mockery, obviously, on yeah. sort of like our, you know, as far into the future as this is and kind of with the technological advancements sort of playing God, that it kind of eliminates the sort of organized religion, but you still kind of see that need for sort of a centralized figure or ideology. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just get the absolute insanity of, <laughs> of, <laughs> of this whole... I mean, that was probably... You know, you come off of the first four chapters or so and then you, you get into this scene and that was just one of the first ones that I was just like, Okay. All right, this book is just kind of like completely all over the place and Yeah. I'll just be along for the ride for it. But you it know, is, when they have him when they have hymnals to, to Henry Ford, their god idol for inventing mass production. It's it was I don't know. It's I guess it's further further again hammering home kind of the idea of control through like everyone has a role and Mm -hmm. that the society is less about like you know orchestrating and accumulating power for those at the top and more just about like we want everything to be even keel we want everyone to just be working and doing their thing and not rocking the boat and living in what we have sort of genetically engineered harmony
0: you know, the one thing that I think was interesting about the the whole Ford thing is like you have to think about the the timeline of, of when he wrote this. Right. So, I mean, vehicles like are just really getting a foothold. And at that point, I, I don't think that cars were um, I mean, they were around for sure, but they were not like an every every man can have one of these kind of things. They were getting there. And I mean, Ford and all of his contemporaries really revolutionized, you know, transportation, military and all that kind of stuff. And that was that's a huge step forward um, in, you know, so many facets of of life. So it is sort of appropriate that he did pick Ford as as that figurehead um, to, you know, change the uh, naming convention of the of the dates. Even who would it be now?
1: Who would it be now? Who's, uh, who's responsible for Musk changing the world so much? Or
0: or Musk. Uh, Bezos? Bezos. Oh, hey, oh, Bezos, Lord. Of <laughs> you better watch your mouth. Is... Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess I better. Yeah. Amazon. Amazon signs my checks, so I guess. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be too critical.
0: No, I. I mean, I. I do think I do think that it probably be, it'd probably be Musk. I mean, who, who else? And are... Has
1: that? Who else has that like universal sort of cult of personality? Like there are yeah. people that I'm sure aren't big fans of Elon Musk, but I can't imagine there's like too many
0: haters. No, and I like... mean he's he's revolutionizing the the car industry. The electric car thing doesn't interest me as so much as just the like autonomous driving stuff. I mean, I've driven a, sure. a Tesla once myself and, and been in one uh, a couple other times, and I mean that technology is astounding. And bringing that to market will change the world again, uh, you know, for transportation. The fact that SpaceX can r- land the rocket that it uh launched, you know, stuff into space, so it's reusable. I mean, that is, that's astounding technology. And hmm. yeah, for all his character flaws, you know, whatever, Henry Ford wasn't a, uh, wasn't a terribly noble person either, so... You know. I'm just
1: saying I'm on the pre I'm on the pre order list for the Cybertruck. So
0: Oh god, I forgot about that.
1: Let that let that be a testament to how I feel about <laughs> our Lord and Savior Musk. So
0: after Musk AM Yeah. <laughs> Jesus I god will Christ. say uh I, I was impressed with uh with how they uh they just lobbed off the top of the crosses, you know. Um so it's just a T. Yeah, yeah, it's just a T that is that is a very industrious Effective and clever thing to do. I, I really liked that. Um, yeah. There are
1: there are some nuggets in this book. Listen, I, I I know it sounded like I was kind of shitting on this book, and it's probably not going to be as high on my as on my list as maybe I would have thought coming in. But there there are definitely some interesting nuggets in here.
0: Yeah. So I wanted I wanted to ask you what you thought about like John's character. So one of the things that I did struggle with and. I, I really couldn't come to terms with was John the Savior at the hospital, um, you know, trying to to get the workers to not take their soma, right? And then right him, you know, at the end, you know, basically torturing himself and obviously eventually killing himself. Um, though those two like facets of his character didn't really make sense. I mean, he did have the, you know, the intellectual conversations with Mond, you know, in the middle there. Um, Which I want to talk about.
1: Okay. There was a quote, there was a quote, a little section in this book that really like stood out to me that I thought was incredibly interesting little nugget that I earmarked it. Okay. Uh, Chapter 10. I'm not sure what page it's going to be on in yours, but he's basically, uh, well, I guess this isn't him talking to Mond yet. This is like uh, Foster and the director. but Okay, okay. They're just talking kind of, uh, I guess, talking about sort of like the level of a man's sort of like intellect and kind of the moral responsibility that he that you have in that. And mm-hmm. so here's the quote. The greater a man's talents, the greater his power to lead astray. It is better that one should suffer than that many should be corrupted. Consider the matter dispassionately, and you will see that no offense is so heinous as unorthodoxy of behavior. Murder kills only the individual. And after all, what is an individual? We can make a new one with the greatest ease as many as we like. Unorthodoxy threatens more than the life of a mere individual. It strikes at society itself. That was like the most insightful thing that
0: I got out of this whole book. There you go. Right there. Yeah. But I mean, is it universal universally applicable? Because the, the, what's necessary for that to be true is that, you know, human lives don't matter. Right. And well, I just think
1: it's, I, I think it's the idea of maybe, I guess if we're kind of relating it to our current present situation, right. And our, within uh-huh. our society, it's, it's less about the actual like physical eradication of people who would be problematic and more so the, the sort of, well, you know, what is one person's life in the face of sort of disrupting, uh, the sort of orthodoxy of belief or uh, the orthodoxy okay. of ideas within the mainstream. And yeah. so I think you don't see it in a sense that like we actually go out there and physically, you know, yeah, yeah. oh, this guy, this guy's talking nonsense, go kill him. But it's the idea of this sort of dissension at this sort of, sort of pushback and pressure against people who would be, bringing unorthodox ideas or ideologies or beliefs to the table and right. the sort of like vitriol with people with which like people sort of attack them and try to deplatform them or sort of remove their livelihood or things like that, whether you want to call it cancel culture or anything like that, sure, just that sure. kind of like, idea. I mean, that's a huge thing, obviously, that's going on sort of right now. And, you know, some of it obviously has merit for people that have done terrible things, but I think, you know, when you get to sort of the extremes of, of squashing squashing any type of speech or ideology that would go against whatever the sort of prescribed orthodoxy of whoever is control of the, who is in control of the conversation. I think it's really poignant.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could apply that to the black lives matter conversation. You could apply it to, uh, statues, right. And take down, taking down statues of, uh, of people of, of, basically ill repute, um, that are, you know, historical figures in American society for whatever reason. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a resistance to that, um, to that sort of like status quo, um, which I think is, I think is kind of ironic because generally the people that, um, are up in arms about, you know, trying to reorganize society and whether it's, you know, black lives matter or, you know, statues or, uh, whatever it is. Those are the people who generally say like, you know, that, that, you know, people are just too politically correct and, you know, they're too sensitive. They're snowflakes and, you know, all sure. that kind of stuff. And it, it, it's, uh, that it's definitely, that an irony there's is definitely never a, lost on me.
1: Well, sure. Yeah. There's definitely like a, a great degree of cognitive dissonance. I think uh-huh. and basically every, major sort of like oppositional group to anything that kind of challenges the orthodoxy, right? There is a a high degree of cognitive dissonance because everybody is fine with challenging beliefs that they don't agree with. And then they're totally bombast or, you know, they're totally blown away by, well, why would you do this? Is just, you know, this is completely crazy that you're trying to like work against something. That, right, That it's right. so obvious, at least to us, that it's this way. Um, and it just, I don't know, it just speaks, I guess, to this idea of whenever you kind of prescribe to a group ideology, right? Or whenever you kind of prescribe to what you would say is commonly held knowledge or commonly held beliefs or, you know, whatever, you know, group of people you associate yourself with, ideology, country, whatever, otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how people sort of just like go into the deep end on this, that they really don't challenge the orthodoxy themselves. And so whenever any sort of segment of their ideology is challenged in any way, you see this immense backlash where it's you're just trying to instead of actually sort of saying like, okay, it's not about me being right or you being right. It's about what is right. And mm-hmm. let's come to that. Let's come to that moment of, 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 you know, of knowledge of, of sort of revelation. And instead of that being the response, it's very much like, well, I have to basically take everything away from you. Cause you can't have a platform to keep saying this or keep right. doing this, right. or I'm going to try to ruin you so that it invalidates everything that you're saying. And it's, it's crazy. Yeah. You see it. I mean, you see it on the right, you see it on the left, you see it everywhere. And it's, the most, I I wouldn't say the most sickening thing going on right now, but from an ideological standpoint of trying to take things as an individual, right. And try to form sort of a, a consciousness around what, what works, what doesn't, what should we do as a human being in the world that we live in, in order to kind of progress within your life, but also to help others around you. It, it's incredibly disheartening to see yeah. that that is sort of the prevailing uh, thing that has kind of a, an ideological stranglehold on the people that are most vocal and that have the most amount of power within these sort of groups.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of to, to borrow a concept uh, from from this book, it's it's sort of infantile, right? In in sure. the sense that, like, if you are not capable or willing to question your own beliefs, to hear somebody else's opinion out, and you know, weigh the the validity or you know wade through the the gray areas to find a middle ground, you know, in a specific situation, in, you know, relationships, in uh, you know, society at large, um it's it's infantile. It's it's ridiculous. Um and you know the 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 tribalistic uh you know mindset that that people have when it comes to some of their some of their beliefs um you know i I just I, I think it's I, I think it makes for uh, a weaker society. and you know, I honestly personally think poorly of people who don't you know think about their own opinions of the world. Mine have changed dramatically in the last like 15 years um sure and they continue to evolve uh and part of that is just you know trying to uh trying to hear other people out trying to read i mean you know john uh in this book makes the the comment that uh you know, reading Shakespeare gave him, uh, gave him words that, uh, expanded his feelings. Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. literature is such an important part of, of exploring other experiences. And, you know, I think if you're not willing to do that, if you're just going to sit in front of, you know, CNN or Fox news or Reddit or whatever it is, and, you know, get your daily download of, of whatever bullshit, um, people want to spoon feed you on any given day, then, you know, you're probably a weak-minded individual and you need to do something about that, right? Um right. nobody nobody should ever be uh a fixed, you know, person. Certainly there are traits uh honorable things that I th- I think, you know, you should try to fix in your character, you know, being honest, being trustworthy. Uh you know, those those things are are good things. Uh you know, but having static beliefs um or opinions is just It's not one of those things. The craziest craziest thing to me is, too, it's, you know, you
1: see a lot now with, and I'll use this as a specific example because, you know, people love to dredge up, like, old things that people have said or done or or things like that as sort of these examples of, aha, you're a terrible person, I've got you. It's that you, yeah, it's this, it's, you're sort of giving value to people who immutably uh, express the same thing for years, decades, whatever, at a time as though that is something to be valued. It's like, well, he's been consistent, right? This guy has been consistent. So we can trust what he says versus people that, you know, I feel one way. And over the course of a year or two, maybe my thoughts on that have changed. Maybe I've had new experiences that illuminate a different perspective. Maybe I've encountered people that have a different perspective on that. Maybe something has happened. And it's crazy to me that the room for people to adapt over time to, Express ideas over time without this sort of like hypocritical. Well, that's not what you said. So basically, you know what are, Who you're just trying to say, whatever, you know, there's no there's no validity in what you're saying to again, this this idea of shutting down the individual through whatever avenue you can. Any time that there's sort of this like challenge against the orthodoxy, and I, I firmly agree, you know, of the with the same sentiment that yeah, if you look at kind of the formative years of my life throughout college and post college and leading up, yeah, I would say that my, I would say probably the last five or six years have not had as much movement, mm-hmm. but prior to that, it was you know it was every every you know few months or every few years when you're going through all these experiences as an adult for the first time you're experiencing new things you're being introduced to new people and and again you're just sort of evolving as a human being and honestly anything you say or do or think prior to like you know 30 is just kind of fucking pointless anyway <laughs> if, if, if i'm being honest it genuinely is pointless because even for me i you know i guess I, I'm, I'm full of shit because i say yeah i've been basically the same the last five years held the last two years i've gone from being completely single to having a kid and another one on the way and like right. my entire <laughs> worldview has completely shifted the things i want in life, the things that i want out of the future uh for our society, for my kids, for all this. It's completely uncompre- or incomprehensible to the way that i viewed, you know, society or life, you know, just a, as as little as 2 years ago and so expecting yeah. that sort of expecting that level of just conformity and and not ever adapting is it's it's in it's it's unrealistic to human nature. It's unrealistic to uh, an individual trying to, I guess, better their situation, to better their understanding, to always be learning. And, and yeah, I think literature, you know, one of the things, too, within the last two years is how much reading we've done. Yeah, that certainly has changed a lot of perspective. I know we've gotten to, to some like really. You know difficult subjects on in in books and it really you know even just having a dialogue between us not that we have you know terribly different experiences or you know ideas or anything like that but even just the small differences in the things that we value the things that we look and, and can find in these sorts of texts has been absolutely enlightening to me so yeah it's it's that I think is one of the most worrisome nuggets outside of you know the whole uh sort of programming a society and mm-hmm. genetically modifying a society. It's like the end the end goal of that is to create this idea where the individual doesn't matter and they're expendable for the sake of sort of this society norm and this orthodoxy. And I see that a lot today. That's the most poignant bit of sort of dystopia. That stood out from this book to me, right? Yep. You know, it's, it was a lot easier, you know, bashing you over the head in 1984. It's like, oh, surveillance. Yeah, that's a big one. Oh, right. sort of the disruption and double think and sort of the manipulation of language. Yeah, that's a big one. But this one, it's, it's definitely a more sort of subversive idea, but just that to me was the biggest, I guess, tie in to sort of how I feel in life in general and the way things are going right now that I got from this book.
0: Yeah, you know, it, uh, I think one of the things that that is really uh, that is really interesting um, is that that like concept of losing the like individual as as an important thing is is antithetical to like American culture, like or, or at least the origins of of America, in the sense that like you know we were fighting for independence from uh, you know, lack of representation. Right. And all these conversations, um, you know, whether it's, it's black lives matter or whatever it is, uh, they're really just battles for representation and, you know, what is, what is more American than, than that struggle to, to be noticed as an individual. And yeah, I think once that, once that's taken away, once we, um, you know, start to, to beat down, you know, others, uh, right to seek those, those things out Then you do sort of start creating this society where, you know, sort of the greater good is, uh, is what's important and, uh, and not, you know, what's good enough for all of us, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was, I mean, we unpacked a lot. I didn't,
1: I, we kind of swerved a lot from the book there. Sorry to take us off on a, a tangent but I felt like it was a it was a good enough tangent to go on
0: no for for sure I mean you know we just we live in a time and place where you know I, th- I think when the conversation leans that way we we just need to go and like you know I, w- I was talking to somebody else you know this last week it's you know I'm very cognizant of like you know our vacuum here on on the podcast but part of having a book club or part of, you know, having friends and having these types of conversations that you and I are having are really to like, feel out our own thoughts, um, about, about things. Right. Um, absolutely.
1: Iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's the best way to approach self betterment is to surround yourself with people that are capable of expressing ideas that challenge what you
0: think. Yeah. And you know this—the society in this book—you know—stifles that, right? You know, through sure. through its programming, through you know, shipping people off to you know, f- faraway colonies. Um, it is it is kind of interesting to to have like you know that kind of conversation in a podcast about you know this this type of society um, that the book presents. Is there anything else about this book that we didn't touch on? I mean, well, let me rephrase that. There's tons of stuff we didn't touch on sure. in this book. Is there anything that's especially like uh, poignant, either a section or, or a question that, that you wanted to, to jump into before we start to wrap up things up?
1: I don't think anything other than what I've expressed. I, I mean, most of the things that jumped out to me while reading this, I've, I've addressed. And so no, I'm good. I'm good. I will
0: say, uh, the, the one thing we didn't talk about at all was sex in this book was well, sex and I guess Soma and
1: sort of the like sexual liberation.
0: I found that to be quite humorous and, and actually if I kind of take a, a bigger step back, I think like the, the whole like, you know, Ford is a deity thing and, all of the sort of like 40 religious stuff, the orgy porgy, the the way that uh, sex and monogamy is turned on its head. Uh, and even like, you know, fathers and mothers and birth, uh, you know, those are things that are all like sort of sacred in, in Western society. Right. Like monogamy in and, sure. and families and parents and all that kind of stuff. And all of that is just completely inverted in this book. Sure. and I find that I found it kind of humorous there were, there was a little bit of like levity in like it's inappropriate to be with somebody. every
1: sacred <laughs> basically every sacred cow that you could piss on in this book whether it's families, whether it's sort of judeo-christian beliefs or sort of the judeo-christian family beliefs yeah whether it was sort of uh, you know anything just within sort of the caste systems, unofficially within society whereas this is more just like hard programmed and everybody's happy consumerism and every single thing that could probably be lambasted about western societal culture is it's not off limits in this book which I, you know i will applaud him at the time for writing something like this because i'm sure there was plenty of blowback and and flack that he took from this
0: absolutely and i will say that there was a foreword in my book where you could tell that that huxley is is a snarky dude i'm, I'm gonna read this this excerpt real quick because I I, okay. I I i dog-eared this one Uh, so he's, I'll just give this a little bit of preference. He is talking about how he kind of wishes that, uh, John had been presented with uh, a different option. Um, you know, when he was talking to Mond, uh, I suppose of either, you know, integrating to quote unquote civilized society or, you know, continuing to be the, the savage and, you know, his eventual death. And he's talking about giving him the option of like sanity, which I assume, he, you know, means like some kind of middle ground between the two. But uh, so the the quote starts, Today I feel no wish to demonstrate uh, that sanity is impossible. On the contrary, though I remain no less sadly certain than in the past that sanity is a rather rare phenomenon, I am convinced that it can be achieved and would like to see more of it. For having said so in several recent books, and above all, for having uh, compl- compiled an uh, anthology of what the sane have said about sanity and the means whereby uh, it can be achieved. I've been told by an eminent academic critic that I am a sad symptom of the failure of an intellectual class in the time of crisis. The implication being, I suppose that the professor and his colleagues are hilarious symptoms of success. So yeah, he definitely got some, some blowback, uh, and uh, and he was definitely snarky about it, which I <laughs> I, I appreciated. Uh, yeah. It kind of set a little bit of the the tone. Reading some of his his own words uh, in the in the foreword about this book. So, ready to get to ratings? Yeah, let's do it. All right, your book, your first.
1: Yeah, this is tough for me. Um, I definitely. What did I? I think I put. 84 on the top shelf, if I remember correctly. I think we both did.
0: Yeah, sounds right.
1: This one for me is in between the middle and the bottom. Um, Simply because it's, for all the reasons we talked about, I don't think it's a complete top shelf book for me. I'm going to put it on the middle. It's going to be kind of the lower end of the middle. But um, I think, again, when you look at sort of the importance that this book has, I guess, on reflecting on – sort of society as a whole it's one of those you don't look at and go wow this was a joy a novel to read the characters are great i loved love the story it's it much like the, our previous episode it's a book that's very much here because of the ideas the thoughts that it you know brings about and so for that reason it's going to be kind of on the lower middle shelf for me but it's still there it's hanging in okay. there
0: yeah, I think you know the the science fiction elements of this book were were really good. Um, we didn't really talk too much about you know this being really a, a work of, of science fiction um, and fairly enjoyable in you know it, its world building and and all of that. Um, I would like to probably reread this at some point in the future. Go, I would like to go back and reread the Tempest because my brain made the connection but it, it's it been so long probably since my like Shakespeare class in college since I read The Tempest mm-hmm. um so I'd, I'd like to, to read that and then I would like to go back and read this again with you know John and, and Bernard um kind of as as uh, as modern versions uh so I do think that You know, this this book has less of like ties to society that 1984 did. You know, I I think Mm -hmm. the main reason that projected to my top shelf was that there are just so many things in there, uh, especially this day and age in politics that, you know, make it relevant, you know, outside of just the book itself, where this one just doesn't rise to that level by the same token, I d- didn't really find it enjoyable as just a you know book within itself. So it is very firmly a bottom shelf book for me, and I okay. I will go further and say I have no fucking clue why this would be required reading over so many other books. Um, sure, and I know that this is on required reading lists. Um, yeah, so that one I'm I'm gonna do some research on outside the podcast and see if. Maybe, you know, we're just missing the boat on something. I mean, Huxley is prolific. You know, seven nominations for the Nobel seven Prize. Seven nominations. I don't know
1: if you would know that after reading this. But yeah,
0: but it was all right. Not there. Not there. All right. Well,
1: next I book. think it's—we t- got to take a break. We can't talk about dystopias anymore. <laughs> Unless oh. you got another dystopia book, then we might as well just go and knock it off.
0: Well, I mean, it's not a—
1: People dystop- keep coming back to us in the middle of this, you know, pandemic for the, for the joyous, uplifting dystopia episodes.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, we're not going to read a a book about a fake dystopia. Um, we are going to read a book about love, terror, and an American family in Hitler's Berlin. Okay. Called "In the Garden of Beasts" by one Eric Larson. Uh, so. I chose going
1: back to that Eric Larson. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So very, very soon after,
0: I I, I struggled with this a little bit. Um, I still like, I still like feel the uh, the pot is kind of steaming on on Eric Larson. I really liked uh, Devil in the White City. I really liked the way that he constructed that book, and I'm I'm just mm-hmm. so curious to see if uh, his other stuff is as good as as that is. Just from like a technical perspective uh selfishly this has also been uh on my like reading pile you know just as ancillary things to read as as i'm writing my book and it has been there for like two years and so i get to knock out you know kind of two curiosities with uh with one episode as it were so that is that is my pick in the garden of beasts
1: Interesting. All right. I'm not sure exactly. I've got a few books that I've got lined up. I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to go after that episode, but I'm going to tell you 100%. 100%. Okay. It's going to be a work of fiction. We get to just read the book, analyze the story. It's not going to have a whole lot of, of uh, connectivity to our present situations. I'm going to pick a book that's just going to be a fun read and we'll just get to knock it out. So we had not had one of those in a sec. We've had a little bit of, like, heavy uh, heavy on the analysis episodes. And I, I'm excited about this Larson book, but I definitely, I, afterwards, I I definitely want to palate cleans with just kind of a, a read, you yeah. know? Well, I'm going to do a genre fiction. I don't know what genre it's going to be, but maybe fantasy. We're just going to do something crazy, and we're just going to read a novel. So I'll
0: probably know that here in the next few days. So we may even have that up, you know, before this episode airs. We might. Well, that's that'll be exciting. Uh, sorry for being selfish, but no, you're good. I I listen. I I was excited uh,
1: at the idea, mostly because I don't think we've really touched on that sort of subject matter since. I mean. A I mean, we really haven't touched on a lot of World War II stuff lately. So, no. I love me some. I love me some World War II, or at least the buildup to it.
0: Yeah, and uh, I, what, I agree.
1: Larson. Larson was an intriguing enough writer that I'm. I'm interested in this. So.
0: The the other thing about this is that it's not like this isn't like the you know middle of the war. This is the early 1930s. The American ambassador sure. uh, to to Germany in in the I think 33s is, is when it starts. In the whole like rise of uh, anti Semitism and, and, you know, Hitler seizing sure. power basically. So it's, it's all like kind of the, the early part of that. So I think that'll be, that'll be interesting to, to talk about and maybe pull in some of my other research and, and discussions and,
1: um, yeah, that'll be exciting. You could use your uh, big Nazi brain on this. I'm not uh, calling you a Nazi or saying that you have a Nazi brain. I'm saying, well, let me rephrase that. You have a big brain on the subject of Nazism in germany your big nazi uh, brain <laughs> yeah
0: there was probably a more tactful that, way of saying that, that was but. that was the most insulting oversimplification <laughs> yeah probably whatever
1: yeah. take it take it early, man at this point uh the cat's out the bag uh, all right i'm
0: definitely i'm definitely gonna <laughs> can't put it me. back in <laughs> all right thanks for listening to this episode next episode is going to be eric larson's in the garden of beast thanks for listening and until next time